So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ori, filling in for this special edition of the podcast. Recently, I got the chance to sit down with Governor Jennifer Granholm while she was visiting Chicago. Over the past 15 years, Governor Granholm has played an outsized role in U.S. energy policy and politics. From 2003 to 2011, she served as Governor of Michigan, a period during which she navigated her state through the worst U.S. economic crisis since the Great Depression and one that she saw as an opportunity to diversify Michigan's industrial base, in part through energy policy. As a member of President Barack Obama's transition team in 2009, she helped build the team that would ultimately design and implement many of the president's key energy and environmental policies. And in 2016, she was tapped by the Clinton campaign to replay this role in a prospective Clinton administration. In my conversation with Governor Granholm, we talked about the state of the U.S. auto industry, the Trump administration's environmental policies, the role of energy and climate issues in the 2016 presidential election, and the future of U.S. energy policy. Enjoy the conversation. Well, thank you for joining us at the uh, Off the Charts podcast. It's you a bet. pleasure to Glad have you. Glad to be here. <laughs> um, I thought we could start off talking just a little bit about your political career and uh, kind of how you got your start in, in politics. Uh, I looked just a little bit into your background, and I know that... Uh, you know, you were a um, you were a, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan, and uh, your next step from there was to run for attorney general. I think, and so yeah, well, actually, not quite. But um, I was not. You know, I've always been politically interested and interested in helping people get elected. But I was not at all thinking that I was going to be somebody who raised my hand and said I would run. And as is true with many women, you, women often have to be invited, right, to even before they even start thinking about it. And so when I was, I was a federal prosecutor and I also ran um, Wayne County, the county in which Detroit sits, their law firm. I was the Wayne County Corporation Counsel. So I had civil and criminal experience and I was working on some political campaigns and knew the folks at the Democratic Party. So when the Attorney General of Michigan, whose name was Frank Kelly, and he had been the Attorney General for 37 years. Wow. They called him the eternal general. Um, <laughs> but when he decided he was going to retire, the Democratic Party came to me and said, would you consider um, running? And I was like, no way. Oh, I've got young kids. There is no way this is going to, that would work for me. I want to help somebody. And so I go home and I tell my husband this and he's like, are you crazy? I got the kids. This is the time. Let's do this. You know, it's a way you can have the biggest impact because I'm always telling people you got to do the greatest good for the greatest number. That's what you're here for. Right. And so, um, so I ran for attorney general and, um, uh, in state government at the time, which is still true. I was the only, um, democratic statewide elected official as attorney general. And so when term limits ended up kicking in and the governor, uh, had to move on, you know, the party said, well, you're the only one, you got to do this. I and mean, of course, I wasn't the only one, but but, um, but I heeded the call there too. And when I was elected as governor, you know, I was, I had a Republican House, a Republican Senate, a Republican now Attorney General, a Republican Supreme Court, a Republican Secretary of State. So I was kind of like the lone ranger uh, holding up at least my end of the political uh, spectrum, so it really required a lot of bipartisan um, efforts inside of state government. How did you do that? Um, well, it was you know some you know heavy fist. We had to shut down government twice uh, mm. to try to get things done, but some of it was uh, more elegant than that. I'll just say we um, did a lot of um, going to the people and inviting the Republican legislators from the various districts to come to events which were publicized and got people to weigh in with those Republicans on the 
um, on the policies that we wanted to push, et cetera, particularly related to the budget and how we were going to cut and what we were not going to cut. Oh, that's interesting. So, so you had you you found ways to get uh, you know people from both sides of the aisle in the room with constituents to kind of hear the story. Yes, that's yes, fascinating. Yeah. We did basically public focus groups around the state in every media um, district, and we invited we had the media of those like the the. Um, the uh, news channels invite the constituents and invite the members of the legislature, and I would put up a series of questions. If you had to make your first cut, if you had to place your first dollar, where would it be? Would you rather fund prisons, or would you rather fund K-12 through education? Of course, everybody said K-12 through education. Would you rather fund mental health, or would you rather fund the arts? Well, people said, well, fund mental health. So you get a list of criteria that were given to you by the people of those in that district, and I brought it back to Lansing and basically said, this is the pe- these are the people's priorities, and this is how we're going to base our budget. Hmm. Did you have uh, did you have kind of political heroes or, you know, as a person who uh, it sounds like kind of came into politics almost a little bit unwillingly at first? Were there were there people who you look to to say, uh, you know, that's uh, those are the kinds of sort of principles that I want to kind of think. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I would always look to someone like, you know, these aren't people that I related with every day because they were maybe gone. But like FDR, of course. And, you know, the emphasis on real people, working people in Michigan, that issue of what are you going to do for real people, especially in light of the economic transitions that were happening in our state, was really important. I loved um, I loved Ann Richards because I loved her strength and willingness to stand up in as somebody who was a Democratic governor surrounded by um, the opposition yeah. at all levels of government. So yeah, there were a lot of political heroes out there, and but there weren't a whole lot. I mean, you know, Governors Association has had a few allies that you could call uh, on and battle with or against the federal government to make stuff happen. But it's, um, you know, there weren't a lot of real-time folks. Right, right, right. Uh, so during that time, it seems like uh, at some point you really started to get focused on clean energy. Yeah. Uh, I remember um, interacting with you a little bit in that time. I was working in uh, in D.C. with Robbie Diamond at SAFE. Oh, and yes. uh, this is around the time that uh, A123 and, you know, the stimulus yeah, and things absolutely. were getting going. There was such an incredible amount of uh, momentum and enthusiasm in Michigan. And you seemed like such a big part of that. Yeah, what, well, what I mean, it was an economic necessity. Honestly, what, I didn't come to this as a clean energy or a climate change zealot at all. I came to this completely from a pragmatic point of view. When the economy was tanking and our uh, economic portfolio was moving away from manufacturing and automotive because of the crisis in the automotive sector and the crisis in the suppliers, we said, we have got to diversify. What are the fastest growing sectors? We brought in experts. We had the Brookings Institute. We had a whole bunch of people come in to do an a sort of SWOT analysis on our economy and say, where are the areas that you can create the jobs in the fastest? And clean energy was one of those. So I was like, all right, what are the policies we need to put in place to make that happen? And so, yeah, that that um, the notion that Michigan could be a leader in CAR 2.0 and the batteries related to CAR 2.0 was a really important part of our economic strategy. The fact that Michigan has a lot of wind and what is known as the thumb of Michigan and certainly offshore wind, which we started a Great Lakes Offshore Wind Council, the GLOW Council, to be able to decide where to place um, turbines in the Great Lakes. If we ever got there, we haven't gotten there yet. But, but you know, that's and the same with solar. We had a company named semiconductor which produced polycrystalline um, silicon and that silicon of course for solar panels and we said how can we leverage that particular industrial asset to get more of the supply chain for solar in Michigan so all of those things we have a huge number of landfills and so what's the waste to energy strategy that we should be using we have a huge amount of farms are there there other waste to energy you know are there anaerobic digestion uh digesters that we could put into place can we help to make any of those all of we looked at every possible angle and um and that's what it was that's what really got me to become a zealot how did you think about at the time you were doing that uh i guess risk in the portfolio you know i'm sure if you went and looked back, there are some investments that were made that really, totally. you could draw a straight line to, to where we are today, having made, you know, important contributions. Uh, and there are some that, you know, you probably knew not every one of these things is going to 
right. stand the test Absolutely. of time. Absolutely. And this is, you know, I was saying this yesterday actually at the Clean Energy Trust uh, event because they fund entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs get notches in their belts for every time they fail and it just makes them better and stronger. That kind of mindset is not available to politicians, right? right. But you still have to try, right? You, you know, so, um, you know, for example, after, at, during the Recovery Act uh, period when the president came in and we were trying to decide where those investments should be and we were, we, when I say we, I mean me and a number of other governors who really were trying to get them to put a big chunk into clean energy. And so the battery um, grants that came out, Michigan got more than half of them. One of them was to Dow Solar. Dow Solar didn't succeed. Right. So, you know, sometimes you don't, you don't succeed, but if you don't try, you're never going to make anything happen. So one of the grants was to LG Chem, and they have now a double factory in Holland, Michigan, and are very successfully supplying solar cells and packs to um, the auto industry. Yeah. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but not trying means that nothing happens. And what was the, if I think about kind of the national political environment around some of those investments and the risk tolerance, or I mean, it's not even risk tolerance, but like the political say response. It. Cylindra. Cylindra, say it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, let's cut to the chase. So like, did you did you face that same kind of challenge? Of in Michigan? course, of course. People were always saying, "Don't pick winners and losers." The irony about this is that if you go to any Democrat or Republican governor's website on their economic development strategy, every one of them will have selected companies or sectors that they're going to focus on. It strategically makes sense. You're going to build on your strengths. You're not just going to, you know, hope that just lowering taxes attracts a whole industrial cluster because it's not going to. So because state taxes are marginal compared to other than in California, state taxes are pretty marginal compared to the federal tax structure. So, you know, governors do this all the time. In fact, there's a magazine called Site Selection Magazine, which gives a, the governor's cup to governors who are able to strategically poach um, businesses from one another, essentially, um, in the sectors that they've chosen. So the targeted tax credits, targeted to certain sectors, almost every state does this. So the winners and losers argument is really just a talking point right. and no more. And was, uh, so I guess one area where you really can draw kind of a straight line from things that were happening then to today is around uh, efficiency regulation in the auto industry. Mm -hmm. um, what did you think were the lessons, or I guess, Maybe give us just a little bit of a of a uh, of a snapshot of what the situation was like in two thousand nine. Oh my God! With are the you industry kidding? and how you guys were as a as a state government feeling about things. And well, let's just let's just I mean, here's a, let's just go to two thousand eight. Right, two thousand eight is when you know the crisis occurs at the end of, of the election. You know, September it started. Right, and you remember how the auto industry, um, what was happening? Just to remind people, is that. When the crisis happened, nobody had access to capital. Nobody was buying cars. Nobody, none of the banks were loaning money to the auto industry. They were sort of redlined um, because nobody was buying cars. So the auto industry was in this full-fledged crisis. GM, Ford, and Chrysler went to Congress to ask for a bailout, right? And this is during this whole TARP thing. Remember how they got there? Remember how they got to Congress? They got there, they flew oh, yeah. in, their, in their private in the jets. jets yeah. So Congress flips out and basically says, go away, we're not going to give you any money. And, and they, they got another invitation and they went back and they drove their favorite cars <laughs> to be able to go the second time. And this was still during the Bush administration. And at the very end, the Bush administration, in I think one of the finest acts it ever made, because I never was fond of praising the Bush administration, but they gave, you know, a $50 billion uh, sort of, uh, you know, a, a lifeline to the auto industry until the Obama administration came in. I was pushing the Obama administration when they first came in. First of all, you've got to do Recovery Act investments that allow us to look to the future. But in, in Michigan, you've got, to, um, you've got to lighten the load with respect to regulations on workforce training. We need more help on our... I mean, there was all sorts of ancillary things happening. So governors get a WARN Act notice when a company is about to engage in a mass layoff, and that means 50 or more people. So during when, when Obama was meeting with all of the governors before he actually took office, I was sitting next to Janet Napolitano, and my BlackBerry at the time kept going off because I was getting all these WARN Act notices about companies who were engaging in mass layoffs. And I said to her, God, I got another one of these. How many of these WARN Act notices have you been getting in the past month? And she said, 
I, I, I haven't gotten any Warnack notices. Are you kidding me? In that month alone, I had gotten 272 Warnack notices. By, between December of 2008 and June of 2009, I got 1,016 Warnack notices of companies who were engaged in mass layoffs in Michigan. All of this cascading from the auto industry melting down and having no access to capital. Fortunately, uh, obviously, the saving of the auto industry was huge savior for Michigan, but it also reinforced the importance of our decision to move into um, the foundation of electric vehicles, the batteries, and to diversify. And that's why the fuel economy standards that the Obama administration was pushing. Initially, I would have been opposed to them because everybody in Michigan had always opposed increased because we always listened to the CEOs of the big three. But then I totally jumped on. I said, look, we have got to move in a new direction. Otherwise, China's just going to eat our lunch. Well, what do you make of this now? Uh, you know, a couple, I guess it was about a month ago, Ford announced that it's phasing out passenger vehicles. I, I can't tell uh, how much the auto industry it really was on board with just the size of the potential rollback and how much now they're a little caught off guard. You hear it both ways. I'm a little skeptical. Yeah, I, I don't know which, I don't know inside of the walls of them which way they are um, moving, but you do know there's like 300 vehicles, electric vehicles that have been announced in terms of models um, that are coming online. People see that this is where the puck is going and they are acting accordingly, even though they're not really making big profit off of their EVs at the moment. But they know that they will. I mean, they can see Moore's Law happening. They see the price of batteries having dropped, what, 80% over the past seven years. Same as solar. I mean, I, I, you know, this is heading in this direction. There was a, uh, a study this week out from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which talked about the trajectory for EVs and for buses. Buses are even going to move more quickly. So, you know, you can see where it's going. And these smart, there's, you know, Mary Barra, um, you know, Sergio Marchionne, Chrysler was a little bit slower on the uptake on this, but I think they're coming on board now. Um, Hackett, Jim Hackett, is just uh, has really caught on, understands, and and as uh, Ford and GM really get this notion of serve of transportation as a service, and so that the auto industry may not be just making the commodity anymore, but also engaged in offering the fleet service uh, yeah. vehicles, which is but really exciting. How, how do you? Uh, I mean, how do you square all that with, I mean, just the, what the, the regulatory approach? I mean, they're, they are on some level pushing back. Against I know. I think there's, as, as is always the case, you may see these visionary statements come out here, but from the government relations department, they are pushing back so that they're hedging on both sides. But I, you know, I, I feel like this uh, pushback on the, you know, or at least the rollback of the cafe uh, requirements I almost think that CAFE at this point has become a, a bit irrelevant hmm. because the technology movement is happening faster than the regulations are, uh, as in all things, the technology is happening much, is going to leapfrog all of the regulatory environment anyway. So, so you think, uh, I mean, the market is driving it. The market's totally driving it. Uh, well... <laughs> the market, I'll say the global market yeah, is driving it. Right. I mean, China is going to have 50% of EVs by 2025, right? If that's the case, the, all that technology has to be in place. So you wouldn't create a technology for the U.S. that's different. You know, it's like that whole state-by-state state argument. You're not going to have a California standard and a Michigan standard, et cetera. So you need to, if you've got the technology and it's being driven by a global demand, then maybe in the U.S. we're going to be slower because our policy is slower, but it's going to happen. And, and do you think, uh, I guess my last question on this, because there's a lot to talk about, but do you think that, I mean, you yourself said, uh, and I think one of the things that you see in those Bloomberg reports is that, the, is that EVs and some of these new mobility solutions are not yet profitable for mm -hmm. the auto industry. How, how do but you... But they're going to be at parity by 2024. Yeah. So they have to, that's a ways away. Yeah. I mean, it's... It, well, how do they bridge that gap? So six years, there'll be parity, although everybody was saying there's going to be parity in 2017. There's going to be parity. I think I wrote that report yeah. in 2010, so... <laughs> <laughs> On batteries. Yeah. Yeah. So like, how do you, you know, they have to bridge that gap. Is they do that, have to bridge that gap. And perhaps that's why you're seeing this sort of push-pull of the regulatory environment. But you're also seeing, you know, the the big SUVs are now going to be electric, you know, which is so great. So the technology is there. They do have to get over this bit of a hurdle, and so they maybe have to sell some of the more, you know, the, the less 
um, climate-friendly trucks, et cetera, uh, until we get there. Yeah. yeah. But I think that everybody sees this happening. Hmm. I mean, why would you see all of this movement, both just not domestic OEMs, but international ones as well? Everybody's going in this direction because they all see... Yeah, something's happening fast in China. Oh, it's for sure. Yeah. Okay, I thought, uh, you know, that's a kind of a good pivot point from there uh, and the kind of what's happening with the fuel economy rollback to the, you know, the, how we got some of these current policies. Um, and, you know, the 2016 election kind of brought, changed uh, a lot from the trajectory of the you previous think? administration. <laughs> you and, you know, uh, it, there were points during the campaign where it seemed like energy wasn't going to be a big part of this campaign. But I think in the end it, it was. Uh, or at least certain aspects of it were. Well, it was in the sense that, um, and here's where Donald Trump, I think, got it right, that the coal worker became a proxy for the forgotten American, right? And for those who see these fast changes as threatening to their livelihoods. And there are a lot of people like that, including, you know, a lot in Michigan. It's one of the reasons I'm sure that he won, uh, in, in addition to a variety of other things. But, um, and this is where I think people have to understand the very deep pain that people who have worked for generations in an industry feel when they're, they feel like the regulatory environment, not just the market. I mean, people assume that coal has gone away because of regulation and not because of the market. We know it's market, but, but nonetheless, that's how they see it. They have, you have to blame somebody. And if you're blaming somebody, it's much easier to blame an administration than global forces, right? Um, so, especially if you're told that. Well, of course, of course, especially if you're told that. But it's also, you know, you've got a, you've, you can attach it to a person as opposed to the market right. or the globe. <clears throat> I mean, China, of course, is always um, sort of the enemy as well. And Trump was uh, successful in, in, in painting it that way. But that's why trade became more of a threat than um, automation, for job loss, right? And, and you know, there's a back and forth about what which is actually true. But the bottom line is that the coal industry and the coal worker became that proxy for Donald Trump. And I think that uh, those who are pushing clean energy solutions have to understand deeply how much people find dignity in their job, especially a job that is part of their DNA. And so when we talk about moving to new areas, we have to take that into account. You have to show somebody. You can't just say, oh, you'll get a job in solar or whatever. You have to really um, understand that people need to see what that is and see themselves in that and understand there's a training component that goes with it and they have to be trained in a way that gives them dignity. So all of that is to say, I think that um, energy uh, was talked about in terms of fossil fuel energy and those workers. And um, I would hope that going forward, people will, uh, leadership will give all Americans hope that they can see themselves in jobs related to clean energy, which has a bright future. Did the previous administration, what did they do wrong? Uh, you know, it does feel a little bit like, uh, they didn't focus as much on that piece of the, this is a transition and as some of these old industries phase out, there's going to be dislocation and this is a potential economic and political risk. How do we manage this? It, there was a lot of the, well, you'll just get a job in solar. That mm -hmm. kind of seemed to be mm -hmm. the, the, the advice. Yeah. I mean, I, here's what I would say. I mean, I do think the Obama administration really tried to address hard hit communities. They tried to, you know, and, and I think some of the things that they started to do by putting, for example, a focus on um, industrial clusters in areas. So, for example, um, they funded um, an industrial um, uh, cluster in Youngstown, Ohio, on um, 3D printing, digital printing, which, of course, is an efficiency technology. Um, that's doing stuff like that where you give people some hope. Now, that was more of a research effort, right? And so how could the feds partner with the state in creating an industrial cluster where they you really did go out and use, for example, the, um, the ambassadors to other countries to identify foreign direct investment opportunities in that space? That could be brought to Ohio to, you know, to have some anchors there and a supply chain there. There was that step 
needed to follow on. I think that if there were more time, you would have seen some of that. But that's really, people need to see concrete. Here's a plant that's making this kind of stuff that I could get a job at, and my job training is being funded for on-the-job understanding of the machines that make this. So it, in that sort of link between a specific job, specific industry in my region has to happen. Yeah, and now instead people are being promised, well, the industry's coming back, the old industry. Yeah, the old industry is not coming back, but we can get advanced manufacturing back in the U.S., because of automation, frankly. I mean, you're not going to see as many people working at a factory, but you could see a lot more capital investment in factories here because of automation. And the workers can upskill themselves by working with the machines, right? And so, you know, you're not going to see factories with no bodies, just like you're not going to see autonomous vehicles who are drive with trucks with no nobody in the cab to watch the cargo. I mean, it's not that's not going to happen. Right. So it's just a different kind of job, and perhaps one that requires a greater level of skill. But that's where you have to bring in training that aligns that machine with this worker and how to use it to be able to have a good, sustainable job. So, uh, and I want to ask you about some other things related to the, yeah. the current administration. But th I, that's such an interesting area um, because I think that. If we do get the training right and the skills development right, some of these things don't need to be so scary. You're, yes. kinda, you kind of hit the nail on oh the head about the high, about it being more high-skilled jobs. But you, like, you are, are we so, doing that? You are so right about this. Quit, just a quick story. I was um, on, the, on a, uh, the Inclusive Prosperity Commission, which was a CAP um, commission that did a report. And on that was a global uh, commission. And on it was a guy named Ed Balls with me. And he is, was the vice chancellor of the Exchequer uh, in Great Britain, and they were all about um, trade. They were, you know, they were pro-trade, and he, you know, he represented an industrial. You know, there was a lot of loss of industry. And I said to him, "How can you be so frontally pro-trade when it has been such a negative impact on people, and it's so scary for people?" And he says, "Here's why: we provide training, we provide a safety net, we give people notion that there is a new job for them, and that we're going to help them get to that job." He said, "You in America, you don't give them that. You have the these." And he didn't use these terms, but I'll replace it. You have this Workforce Investment Act and Trade Adjustment Assistance. Those are also 20th century. You need a 21st century strategy that uses those dollars, but to give people the notion that they're going to have a better job, and here are the skills specifically attached to where they are. You don't want to have somebody who is 48 years old, has never gone to college, has worked in a factory, they've lost their job. They didn't, they didn't take... You know, they didn't even go to college, so they don't want to go sit next to a 20-year-old at a community college and take calculus when they don't even remember stats. You know, they, you have to train people in a way that gives them dignity and takes them where they are to where you want them to be. And this is why technology and machine learning and all of that can, can really be tailored in a way that gives those workers dignity. But this is a big question, in, in not just in, I mean, obviously in energy, but just in economic policy more broadly. And, and so, course. like, a lot of what you described are, are, uh, are good outcomes but I want to push you on this a little bit. Like, what yeah. is the, what does that look like in practice? Like, so why have we, we've not figured, we've not really cracked that code yet, right. as far as I can And remember. I think it's a lot of because we have ossified policy in Washington. So here's what I would say. Um, in Michigan, when I was governor, after all of this uh, happened, I, this is, okay. I created something called No Worker Left Behind. And in that, I said to, um, I stood up at a state of the state address and I said, the first 100,000 workers who come in the door, we will, tr we will pay for your training, but you've got to agree to be trained, trained in an area of need, meaning that you can't go get a degree in uh, political science or French. Those are my degrees, so I could say that. You have to agree to be trained in clean energy, as a nurse, in these areas that we knew we had holes and gaps. Um, we had 200,000 people, 250,000 raised their hand, 200,000 ended up being trained. But the federal government gave me the flexibility to reuse our workforce training dollars in that way. Now, the next step would have been for me to place people with specific employers, but we didn't, and we didn't get a chance to do that. But the bottom line is the fact that people were, were given the opportunity to be trained through flexible dollars, that was a really big help. So you could see repurposing some of those dollars or all of those dollars in a way that allows for them to attach to a person mm. and have them choose the kind of training, but the training has to be guided in some way. 
or do what Germany does, you know, subsidize employment and training on the job rather than subsidizing unemployment. We have all these people who are unemployed and we're requiring them to go look for a job, but what if we help to pay for their employment with employers who now have a huge talent, there's a talent gap, and if we paid for them to be trained on the job using unemployment dollars, that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to pivot from there back to the discussion about uh, the current policies, and I guess, and a little bit of the, uh, yeah, the current policies and politics. Do you see that there are buffers? Uh, I don't want to get too much into, there's all kinds of things happening at EPA, you know, we all know the story about, you know, the story is the clean power plan, fuel economy standards, uh, but do you see that there are buffers, like at the state level, and yes. other trends that are going to, that, that yeah. hold the line, sort of, yeah, so yeah. to speak? Totally, totally. I mean, I'm so, what is it, 2,500 leaders have raised their hand and said, we're still in on the Paris Accord, right? So many states, so many mayors, mayors are killing it in terms of their commitment. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that um, despite the federal inaction, um, the states and locals are really stepping up. However, it is spotty. And so the, you know, the concern that you're seeing a lot of uh, you know, nothing happening in like the, the southeast uh, regions, uh, that's distressing. Although I would say that even there, you're seeing, for example, in Florida, um, you know, where there, there's this whole thing about, you know, it's the Sunshine State. It should really have solar as a real priority and emphasis. That issue is being raised now in the governor's race, right. which is really great. So maybe Florida Power and Light will, you know, come along and see this as a business opportunity for them and not a threat. Yeah. And so, so I mean, we're seeing that in, you know, Georgia, it's same thing. They're starting to see how important it is. They've come along on efficiency, too. So I think that a lot of the utilities are starting to see the opportunity uh, for, for them, rate basing. You know, when utilities can start rate basing, for example, storage, um, that would be great and help to facilitate renewables. So I, I, I think that regardless of inaction at the federal level, again, both the market as well as state and local players are going to keep this drive happening. And, of course, technology. Now, what about politics? I mean, one of the things that I've been struck by over the last, let's say, uh, five years or so, and it's probably been happening for longer than that, but it just took me a little while to catch on, is the energy industry is changing a lot in the sense of its geographical uh, kind of dispersion. So you had, you know, if you went and look back 15 years ago, let's say, um, you know, U.S. power plants were centralized, uh, you know, across the board. You had, uh, uh, you know, whatever, several hundred large plants, especially coal plants, uh, providing a lot of electricity, half of our electricity, uh, fueled by a few very large coal mines. You had a handful of really large oil and gas fields that accounted for where all the energy came from in those sectors. Now, because of shale on the gas side and on the oil side, that industry is becoming much more dispersed. Pennsylvania, you know, New Mexico, Colorado, North Dakota, and the renewables industry has has also kind of uh, driven some changes in the in the makeup of the electric power sector. Things are more spread out, mm -hmm. um, and and I you know I started to wonder, well, is this going to uh, start to get people to vote with their pocketbooks more in ways that actually align with clean energy goals, especially, you know, on the renewable side, but also on, on, on natural gas. And there have been some, there have been some little indicators of that here and there that seem like they're positive. The, uh, extension of the, uh, the PTC and the ITC got a lot of Republican support. Uh, there've been some similar kinds of little votes, uh, I think around the tax bill, there were things that protected renewables. Do you see the, the politics around energy changing? I totally do, but I see it changing not based upon uh, climate, but upon jobs. So you've got distributed uh, energy resources, and that means that people have had to install them on homes and on commercial facilities. That means that there are businesses who are there. That means you've got these local chambers of commerce that are clean energy focused, that are making their case at state legislatures as well as to members of Congress. Um, so yes, I definitely think that the more distributed, you know, there's distributed policy and then there's distributed resources. And the more distributed it gets, the more 
um, interspersed, interwoven, it gets into the fabric of a community, then it becomes impossible to rip that out when people see it as a job. The whole frame, though, to me, is much more effective focusing on jobs and the economy than uh, on climate. And I say that only because, and obviously I, I strongly believe in the climate side, but from a persuasion point of view, especially in the states that uh, have not picked this up, it's got to be jobs. The you know Pew Charitable Trusts does an analysis at the beginning of every year of the top issues for America, and, and they use the same questions every single year. So for a decade, you know, or more, they always ask, and always at the top is economy jobs, always at the bottom is climate change and global warming. So it's just not the, the issue that's pressing for most. For what, what people care about, it's not, it's not fancy. It's they care about jobs and putting food on the table. And so that's why it's got to be framed in that way. And that's why the opportunity and the growth projections in this sector, to me, are the biggest and most compelling reasons why policy has to has to be put in place to take advantage of those job opportunities. And, and if we think about policy uh, and kind of the hopefully the long arc of policy around these issues in the U.S., you know, uh, there will be a time when the federal government comes back to want to do things on uh, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> uh, do, is there any risk that uh, we create this kind of patchwork of state and city policies that doesn't align with a national policy? I'm thinking especially about carbon pricing and if we have this. Right, right. I mean. W- I don't know that we're going to get to a point in our near future, even if we have a an aligned uh, president, uh, that we're going to see a national cap and trade or carbon price. Um, but I do think this is so. My fantasy is this: this is Hillary Clinton had this as part of her um, economic development policy, which you know um, I, I absolutely loved. She put out a challenge. She would have put out a challenge to the states and regions. Um, and, and, and really did focus on states and regions, um, saying, I will put, I think it was $60 billion on the table. You come and vie for this and tell me what policies you can put in place that will create jobs and meet our goals, right? And I'm sure that if that were fleshed out more, she would have said, here's some basic things you have to do to be able to enter the competition. So maybe you, everybody has to have an, an RPS, a statewide renewable portfolio standard that's at you know, 30% by 2025 or something like that. I'm sure there would have been some basic things like that. But if you could imagine that, it's a sort of way to respect federalism but to have a basic threshold, sort of a floor, beyond which people could vie. And the money uh, could go toward retraining, it could go toward you know, creating industrial clusters, investing in tax incentives for people, to, for businesses to locate, whatever, that, whatever the state wanted. I use this, you know, kind of a clean energy race to the top in the same way as the race to the top that was for education, because in that case, the federal government, the Obama administration put out $4.3 billion or $3.4 billion, I'm not sure, so, but a small amount, and 48 states, in order to enter the competition alone, changed their high school standards to have every kid do essentially a college prep curriculum. 48 states, they didn't, not 48 states didn't get money. 48 states did that just to enter the competition. That was a huge policy success in terms of getting, respecting the states, putting out a carrot, and seeing everybody move. And believe me, you know, it's, it wasn't easy. I, I went to my legislature, we got it, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to enter. And we didn't even get any of the money at the end, the end which gave me a lot of grief. But, so I might, I, might, I might jimmy the formula a little bit and give everybody at least something if they are able to right. get something. But anyway, something like that would be a great federal strategy that respects the states and achieves a nas- some national consistency. But we have, I guess, uh, we have this kind of other situation now where there is no federal. Yeah. The, the federal guidance has kind of taken a big step back. We have and two so, and a half years, and that's going to be fixed. As you say, uh, uh, states and cities are now going off and doing their own things. Yeah. I guess I'm just wondering, does that, in the near term, that might feel good. A lot of these policies, I suspect, are probably very inefficient. Uh, and to, in the but over the long term, do they create kind of a little bit of a mess that someone's going to have to clean up at the national so. level? I don't think so. I think you're you're seeing you know all these thousand flowers blooming, right? People are experimenting. They're trying different things. Uh, some places, it's you know California is the greatest experimenter of all, right? They're seeing all of this amazing policy. So the other states can learn from those who are really first adopters and early advocates um, and willing to try things. Um, 
you know, and I, I would suspect that if you did an autopsy on what, you know, in a couple of years on what California is doing, they would say there's a few things we would do differently, and here's what we'd recommend to states, et cetera. So I, I'm the, um, uh, the founder and chair of the board of a big research project called the American Jobs Project, and it, it really looks in uh, the swing states largely at what are the policies they could adopt to be able to be irresistible in specific clean energy sectors. So we do a SWOT analysis on a state. We say, you know, this is a resource that you have that is unique. You should, you know, leverage that and adopt some policies that will cause that to flourish. So not every, every state has something to offer in this clean energy environment. Not every state is the same. You can't do a cookie cutter. So I think a lot of this local experimentation is really kind of healthy. And we'll learn from it because not every state is going to have geothermal assets, for example. Not every state is going to have offshore wind assets. Not every st- I mean, every state, probably every state has some solar, right? And, not cost effective in every state. Right, it's, but it's not cost effective, <laughs> right. So if you don't have solar, maybe you've got wind. Maybe you've got waste. Maybe you've got something else. So I think that the, the experimenting is a good moment for us to gather some research. And then when we have federal leadership on this to be able to learn from what's going on in the states to really put forth a federal policy that will create some consistency but also allow those to soar. Yeah. On that one area that's you just uh, just a slight detour I just want to ask like uh, one of the big challenges in in clean energy policy over the last few years has been that uh, some states have made it hard to get the clean energy resources from the places where they are the most cost effective to the markets where they're needed. Like uh, the wind corridor, you mean? Yeah, and, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, we have a lot of oddities in the electricity markets yeah. here in Illinois, but one is that, you know, if you look at uh, locational marginal pricing at any given point in time, there's times when it's the, the power is dirt cheap in Western mm-hmm. Illinois because mm-hmm. of all the wind that's blowing in Iowa, and there's no connection to right, right. Uh, markets in See, Springfield. To me, this is why a national challenge could fix that kind of stuff, the interconnection problems. Or like would be top of the list. The investment in grid, obviously, would be top of the list. So because we have this patchwork system now, the patchwork system is bad to begin with in terms of interconnectivity and how the electricity markets speak to one another. But a national challenge could bust through right. a lot of that, especially you know, because of the, um, the PUCs could respond to that. And the PUCs, of course, largely appointed um, by the governors, et cetera, they could get an order. Did, um, so you mentioned two and a half years. And uh, so I want to ask you about that, uh, the forthcoming or the coming election. Uh, but what I guess the one 2018 th- or the 2020? 2020. Uh, Did I say 2020? Yeah. 2020. Um, what I guess one question is lessons learned from the last go around. I mean, did, did, uh, you know, you talk about jobs and, and, um, how things matter at the local level. Did certain parts of the of the Democratic Party hurt the overall, um, I guess, message and, and momentum with things like fracking ban and those kinds of things? Was that hurtful? Um, you know, I think that a lot of that too is regional, and the regional um, the regional aggressiveness of places um, ends up in a federal election being federalized. And so that's, that's a concern. I mean, you don't want the, you know, the, the furthest out of any policy to say that, you've, that that's, that point has to be spread across to everybody. Because, you know, I mean, this is a different country. It's all context. It's everything is, you know, regional is, and local is everything. So, um, so you do worry about that. Um, but I, you know, again, I think that's all part of the experimentation, and um, and I think it's healthy. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, China and trade, mm-hmm. uh, and the Trump administration's kind of approach on on trade. And I hear, you know, uh, more and more people saying, "Well, you know, uh, we don't like necessarily like the way he's going about it, and they they don't really seem totally prepared for some of these negotiations." But there is, there are, they're not wrong that there are underlying issues in the relationship with China. Uh, and the way trade is conducted with China and how China treats U.S. manufacturing exports and those kinds of things. 
it seems like it seems to me that he, that the one of the the interesting ch- potential challenges or things about this national populist kind of moment is that the Trump administration has tried to grab hold of issues that had historically been, you know, the Democrats, yes. uh, you know, That's major true. issues. What kind of challenge does that present for Democrats over the long? Yeah, you know, no, it's it's. There's no doubt that he has transformed the view of the Republican Party. Yeah, not free the, trade right? anymore. Right, they're not free trade anymore. I do think that um, that Democrat, that, you know, this has been right. I mean, when I traveled to China with securing America's future energy, I remember standing in the back of one um, one uh, demonstration, and there was a one of the mayors, a Chinese mayor, was standing next to me, and he says to me, he says, um, "When do you think the U.S. is going to get a national?" a federal energy policy. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And uh, he just smiled and he said, take your time because they see our lack of action as their opportunity. And so, yes, it is true that on trade, China has taken advantage and we need taken advantage in ways that really have hurt manufacturing in the U.S. and that have stolen our intellectual property and all of that. But what we need to do is not to be afraid of trade, but we should be enforcing the trade agreements we have, beefing up our enforcement of them for sure. But we have been a pussycat at the WTO, for example. We've waited. We've not brought actions as the nation. We've waited for others to come up and suggest, and it's taken a huge amount of time. I mean, if we beefed up the enforcement section and required our trading partners to abide by the same standards that we abide by, you could be forward-facing, outward-facing, the U.S. We should be leading. We're not afraid of trade. Bring it on. We just want it to be, and we will insist that it be fair. We don't want to close ourselves down and become small. We want to take advantage of these global markets. We want solar panels. I mean, I know it's unrealistic to say this, and people who are in the solar industry will hear me and say, she just doesn't have a clue. But we, I would love to see solar panels made in the U.S., stamped made in the U.S., and exported around the world instead of everything having to come from China. And I do think that with productivity, increases and machine learning, we can get to that point. But right now, China has eaten us for lunch. They've brought, we've brought a knife to a gunfight. And so Trump gets that. And Democrats have to understand that our language and our policies have to be in favor of, yes, making stuff here and exporting it across the world, but not being afraid of trade. Um, Are there people, uh, well, for 2018 and for 2020, are there people that you're excited about? Running? Yeah. Can you tell us any of that? <laughs> so I'll, I'll just say this. I mean, I, there's a lot of really exciting people, right? But I, there's, I mean, I'll just say, I personally, who's, uh, this person who is a total honorable person who's a friend uh, and who hasn't formally declared, so I'm not sure that I should be saying his name, but um, I love Deval Patrick the former governor of Massachusetts, also a huge um, clean energy guy and um, has an incredible personal story, can speak to people's hearts and souls, has been a governor, has also been in the private sector, is really focused on um, doing good in the world. So I think somebody like, if he doesn't run, somebody like him who would be able to speak to people's hearts. You have to have somebody who causes our hearts to soar in, uh, in a way that pulls people and who can be above, I think we have an opportunity, we Democrats have an opportunity to be a contrast to this administration in this sense too. People are so stressed and uh, I'll speak for myself, I just, I feel like I wanna take a shower every morning and wash off the division and the partisanship. Now I contribute to that because I'm on CNN and I'm battling the other forces too. So I, I will say my own mea, mea culpa, but I do want to have a leader who brings us together, who unites us in the common good, who really puts united in the United States of America instead of every word out of his mouth being something that divides Americans against Americans. Deval Patrick could totally do that. Will, uh, will Michiganders have a chance to vote for Jennifer Granholm again for anything? No, I'm not running for anything, just to be clear. Um, uh, I have, I'm an executive branch uh, person. I'm term limited, and um, I am not a legislative branch person. And I was born in Canada, so the only other executive branch would be the presidency, and I'm not eligible for that. So um, I am just going to help good people get elected. 
and encourage encourage the millennials and the Gen Zers to take back our nation, <laughs> to vote and to get out there and save us from ourselves. So uh, with our last couple of minutes, tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, on that front. You're teaching at Berkeley. Yeah, I teach a class at Berkeley. In fact, I teach uh, this class that I just taught. You'll love this. It's called The Hottest, Coolest Policies from the Laboratories of Democracy. <laughs> it is uh, a graduate school uh, from you know, the public policy school, and the graduate students are to bring policies that we don't hear about because of all the noise out of Washington, but that actually have data behind them that are proven to work, which is cool. So I teach that, but I, and I'm doing it next uh, semester in partnership with the journalism school, and we're going to turn it into a podcast. So that's kind of fun. Excellent. Yeah. But, um, um, but I, so I do that. I do some CNN work. I do some political work, but I'm also the managing partner of a new advisory uh, and capital firm called Ridge Lane. The Ridge is Tom Ridge. So it's a bipartisan, he's former governor of Pennsylvania, bipartisan firm. I'm the head of the sustainability group. In that group are people like former governor of Colorado, Bill Ritter, former governor of New Jersey, Christy Todd Whitman, um, other people who worked like the chief sustainability officer for the Obama administration, Christine Harada, a whole bunch of great people who are working to help triple bottom line companies get a foothold geographically across the country. We've got a ton of people on this on the overall roster, but it's very exciting to be able to see what the upcoming technologies are and how to be able to help them navigate relationships. Tell us what that means, triple bottom line. Triple bottom line meaning companies that want to do good for their shareholders and themselves, but also good for their employees and good for the world. And that, in this case, it's in, with sustainability companies. And so that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty bipartisan mix there. I mean, Tom Ridge is a fairly conservative guy. Like, yep. how does that, how did that come together? Well, it, um, it really was born of the notion that a lot of us who have served, so, for example, the former governors of Washington are also part of the mix, uh, Governor Gregoire and, um, uh, and the other... Uh, uh, Gary Locke, the other former governor of Washington. Um, w- you know, we all want to continue to do good work. And in this space where we have an interregnum on the federal side, you know, how can we help technology companies go to market? Is there some, you know, advice that a lot of startups who may not have navigated the, the relationships at the state or local level and maybe need some advice on how p- political figures think or how we're not lobbyists or anything like that, but it's really to to help them strategically um, get a foothold. And we've all got pretty good Rolodexes too. Okay, we are uh, unfortunately out of time. Uh, it would uh, it would be great to keep talking with you, but I'm um, sorry, I'm such no, a blabbermouth. Uh, you are. We would love to have you back anytime. We have to have you uh, down to Hyde Park for a talk uh, sooner great. than later. Thank you for joining us. Thank it's you. Been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu or on the iTunes store. Until next time, I'm Sam Ori. Mm-hmm.